When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome to Comedy History 101, where we school you in comedy. I am Harmon Leon. Hello. Today, we have a very special CH 101 reprise episode on the history of Last Comic Standing. We originally ran this episode earlier this year, but we are bringing it back because it's one of my favorite episodes. Last Comic Standing, if you're not familiar, is the iconic TV series that pitted comedians against each other in a battle. The show ran from 2003 to 2015. It was a reality TV show where comedians live in a house together and then they compete to see who's going to be the Last Comic Standing. The show helped launch the careers of Amy Schumer, Gary Goldman, Nikki Glaser, etc., etc., and our guest today, Rob Cantrell. Rob was a finalist on season one of Last Comic Standing. He went on to appear on The Colbert Report. He's toured with Tracy Morgan. He's appeared on Tracy Morgan's TV show, The Last OG. He's been on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Plus, he shares iconic stories about the history of San Francisco comedy scene in the 2000s. But before we jump into the episode, remember, as always, take some time to like, subscribe, and leave a dumb comment on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your podcasts. We will read your comments on the air. And support us by leaving a star or two or four or five on Apple Podcasts. Also, a few quick plugs on Sunday, November 12th, 7 p.m. I will be presenting my show, AI versus Human Roast Battle. Yes, come out and see a human comedian take on a machine learning AI in a roast battle of tomorrow. That will be 7 p.m. at The Pit, the People's Improv Theater in New York City. And on November 16th, 7 p.m., I'll be presenting my show, That 80s Improv Challenge. Yes, three improv groups compete by creating scenes from obscure videos from the 1980s. And that will be taking place 7 p.m. at Young Ethel's in Park Slope. And on Saturday, November 25th, 5 p.m. at Young Ethel's in Park Slope. Once again, I'll be presenting my show, Jokey Oki, stand-up comedy karaoke, in a three-round game show. Yes, I'm a fan of three-round game show formats. And you can find out all my show dates at HarmanLeon.com or on the social medias at HarmanLeon. And now, without further ado. You stupid. Everybody so stupid. I'm trying to use the phone. Excuse me. Comedy History 101. You're the first guest in the relaunch of my Comedy History podcast. We've been off for two years. <laughs> and, and you know what happens when you're off for two years? It's like, it's time to bring it back and have Rob Cantrell on and tell some stories. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm always good for a good comeback. Should we jump right in? Yeah. Hey, Rob, we've known each other for a while. So why don't you tell the folks who you are just to bring everyone up to date? <laughs> who am I? Uh, I'm a human being on this planet uh, that's spinning around very fast. Uh, I'm a comedian, I'm a writer, I'm an actor. I'm originally from Washington, D.C. and uh, grew up some time in Southern Virginia. But I met you, Harmon, when I first started performing stand-up comedy in San Francisco, the Bay Area. 
So I started out there. I now I live in Brooklyn. I just did your great uh, storytelling show. That's about it. I uh, I like pistachios. I just had a bunch of pistachios. So Rob, in case if someone's been out of the cultural lexicon for the last decade or two, could you tell us what the TV show Last Comic Standing is, was, I believe the last episode ran in 2016. Fill us in on what this series was all about. It was phenomenal. It was a phenomenon. I don't know. It wasn't a phenomenal show, but it was a phenomenon in terms of stand-up. Yeah, it was a uh, it was it, it was literally a comedy competition, but it was during the days of reality television where it was like Big Brother and like Survivor. And I guess the pitch came down and it was Jay Moore and actually one of the like producers of The Daily Show. When I first saw it in the trade papers after I auditioned for it, when I auditioned for it, I was on the very first season. And they, it didn't even have a title. It was just like this reality show that was looking for stand-up comedians. And I was in line just like everybody else. And I think there was some buzz in the industry, like managers and stuff were talking about it because it was with NBC and it was going to be on primetime. And at the time, Jay Moore was like a big movie star. Well, not a big movie star, but, you know. Jerry is back in his... Jerry post Jerry Maguire days. Yeah, post Jerry, which yeah, Jerry Maguire was like a, you know a top rated Hollywood film in history. So he definitely had the pull, and he was like a you know old road comic from Jersey from back in the day. So he has, he was a big fan of stand up comedy, and the pitch came down. Him and Barry Katz put together Last Comic Standing, which was literally like a kumite fight uh, of comics being judged, and then they live in a house like. That was over the years, it kind of dropped away from it. But yeah, I had to live in a house for, you know, we lived in a house with the 10 top contestants and each week they worked off a guest like Survivor down to the last four. So it was it was Jay Moore and Barry Katz uh, for listeners. Barry Katz, uh, how would you describe him? Big manager, producer? Big East Coast uh, manager, producer, he owned the Boston Comedy Club, which is where uh, Dave Chappelle, he was Dave Chappelle's first manager. He was Jeff. He was just a powerhouse, I would say, of late 90s, early 2000 New York comedy. And he came from the Boston comedy scene. So if you came here to New York, it was he was like because he had a comedy club. And that's what a lot of things like if somebody has a comedy club, they have access to stage time and not, you know, comics love stage time. So he had like clout that way. And he also had ambition to make it in Hollywood and produce television stuff. And Jay Moore, I think, was like one of his first big acts to get on SNL. And um, so I guess they got pitch meetings. And this was during the time of, uh, you know, reality shows and stuff like that. So they pitched it that way. Yeah. So basically real world meets comedians in a, yeah. in a competition. In a, a survivor. Yeah. That's your pitch. Which back is, in that day, which is back in your day. And, and at the time, you know, yeah, I, I was like two and a half years into stand up. I started. What, what, what was the year that uh, and again, when it first came on your radar, um, what where were you at in life? I had a comedy uh, jazz band with our good friend Dan Crawford. I was a, a comedian, you know, trying to figure it out in San Francisco. I just moved there after my like first real job after college, which I did not like. And then I was like turning towards being creative. I just was like, man, I got to get into, I've always wanted to do stand up. I wanted to always wanted to do comedy. All my friends were moving out West. I had a lot of college friends that had like extra rooms and shit to crash when I first arrived. And so that I just kind of arrived and kind of refigured my life out. I saw open mic at uh, the Brainwash Cafe, which was this famous like punk rock bar. I was listening to, I think a podcast or interview, TV interview with uh, Ali Wong, and she was talking about the Brainwash. So it's legendary. It's legendary. And it was legendary. Tony Sparks. Tony Sparks, and that was in The Guardian. I remember looking at the paper in The Guardian. I remember being like, who's this guy, Tony Sparks? And then actually arriving there and I saw this whole scene, which was, you know, it blew me away being an East Coast, you know, kind of from the South. And, and you know, creative arts wasn't like 
first and foremost everywhere. But this was like a full on, there was a line of comics signing up. People were watching, but they were all kind of weird and terrible. And as we know, it was kind of open mic scene. But to me, it was fascinating. Like it literally was like so colorful and out there um, that it just blew my mind and I fell in love with it. But yeah, at the time of last, I was like two and a half years into doing, committing my life to stand-up comedy to the point where I was like living in a hostel for a good year, working the front desk of a hostel to get front free rent in San Francisco. I w you saw me at an outdoor store. You worked at a sporting goods store and me and our friend Arz Barker were once shopping. And you I went, know, hey, I you guys, you and we were like, oh yeah, yeah. Hey, now about these snowboards. <laughs> we saw, I don't know if we dissed you, but it was- uh it was yeah, a I thought you guys meeting. were the cool. You should have dissed me. I thought you guys were the coolest, raddest cats ever. Uh, Arj, if anybody knows, Arj was really still one of my favorite stand-up comedians. One of the best joke writers. Just an out there, cool California cat that made it big in uh, on Australia. Australia, but he was on Flight of the Concords and yes. now he lives in Australia. But Harmon was one of his very close friends. And Harmon, I knew from... Shout out Mike Spiegelman, uh, this old place called the Mock Cafe, which was this old like uh, kind of art theater thing that even Robin Williams would stop by in the Mission District when the Mission was like the Mission. And Harmon would do his one man plays there. And I just remember being like, oh, man, these guys are like real artists. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> these guys are Jack Kerouac. And uh, who's the other guy that he used to hang out with? Neil Cassidy. Uh, Neil Cassidy. And this is Neil Cassidy and Jack Kerouac right here looking at me. This is their life. When I look back on those days and right before Last Comic Standing, and it it was uh it was very romantic. I wanted to have the romantic art life, and I got it. You know, I did, you know, those years I did live and scratch and do it all. But as you know, it's it's hard to pay the rent that way, and you got to make it big eventually. But uh, and then last comic standing after three and a half years was just, it was just weird timing. I was uh, working at a school part time. I was living way out in the. Uh, it was actually like by the Cow Palace. I had a place. And then where did you first hear about like the auditions for Last Comic Standing? Or how was it like in the SF Weekly or, no. or just at comedy clubs? And I also just watched episode one of season one. And you're at the uh, Herbst Theater. I am. Yeah, I, it was it was NBC was involved. And then the bookers for The Tonight Show shot out uh, Ross and the, the other guy, Mike. They were involved with selecting comedians. And there was also agents involved. But I have to say, you know, I got to give love to our dear friend, Mike Spiegelman from uh, San Francisco. I remember being in the brainwash and comedians were talking about this open call audition. They were like, and I'd already done like they would have open call auditions for the Aspen Comedy Festival and like 200 comics would show up and you would just do two minutes and then nobody would be selected. You know, there was always like these weird like word of mouth open call auditions for something that was astronomical but nobody ever seemed to get fruit of it but i remember talking to mike and i was like and every and the word on the street was like back then it was like either you especially in san francisco san francisco was kind of had a snobby and which was very good for me it was kind of like you know pat oswald just came out of there uh what are yeah. some of the other Kamal, though. Kamal, I, but I kind of came up with Kamal. Yeah, Al, Al Madrigal. Al Madrigal. They were great. Arge, but more Ali Wong. Arge, but uh, who was the guy that wrote, wrote for The Simpsons? Uh, oh, Vernon Chapman. Vernon Chapman. No I, think he, no, I don't think he wrote for The Simpsons, but. Uh, the other guy, he's still hilarious to this day. He was a, he was a comic and he wrote he for The Simpsons. He was a comic and he has a talk show now where oh, he. Dana Gould. Dana Gould. So it was yeah. kind of like you're in the shadows of Dana Gould. You're in the shadows of Patton Oswald, and they were all rejecting kind of the hacky 80s style of comedy. And there was kind of this new, like, just clever, hip, cool vibe that was going on. Shout out, you know, Mitch Hedberg, Arch Barker, David Tell, like, very. Yeah, Hedberg, Hedberg lived in San Francisco for a very short time. 
Pacifico, right? Pacifica. Pacifica, yeah. Where I first surfed by the Taco Bell. It's I a- surfed by that Taco Bell. Yeah. And by That's- the way, shout out to that Taco Bell, the best Taco Bell in the world. It's right yeah. on the on the ocean. You're right on the ocean. If you, yeah. anybody wants to r- drive Route 1, which you should do once in your life, right outside of San Francisco, the first town is called Pacifica. And it's like this little cove, but on beautiful, I mean, it's like this little cove. And then there's like a couple surf shops. And then there's a Taco Bell. And your friends from San Francisco, you would strap your board to your thing and drive down there and paddle. And it's really rocky. And you had to put on a wetsuit. But I do remember being there on a beautiful summer day, like the first time I arrived to San Francisco and you look up and you're in the ocean, but you're also seeing the mountains. So there's these huge, beautiful mountains that are the beginning of route one. And it's like one of the most, I mean, there's a lot of places in California that are beautiful, but that was, I just remember how surreal, but Mitch lived there. Shout out to Mitch Hedberg. That was the word on the street is that he lived down there, which is actually the coolest place to live. Yeah. And so when you had this open call, was it, I, again, was it like a line around the block to audition? It and it was it like who's who of San Francisco of that time? And again, I watched the first uh, episode again, and they show Kevin Shea and Ant in you. Yeah. I think you were the three people. And I saw like a, for a minute, uh, Connor Kellicut. <laughs> yeah, Connor. Every comic that wasn't like in LA already doing, but most comics from San Francisco, a ton of road comics. There must have been some email sent out to show up and do this mysterious showcase. And the weird thing is, I was not going to go. And Spiegelman was like, You got to go. I think he went or he didn't. He might have had to work. I didn't have to work for some laundry basket. Yeah. For some weird reason. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, Spiegelman used to do an act with a laundry basket. Uh, <laughs> he was very out there. And I don't know, I gravitate to the out there comics. This was a very main, for me, this was a very mainstream chance. Yeah, what were you, what was your like expectations going in? Was it just like, well, here's a thing to do. It's not on TV yet. Maybe, you know, because sometimes I did, you know, things don't end up on TV. I knew it was a reality show and I knew I had like some charisma and I had enough confidence that, you know, I'd already opened at the punchline for David Tell and Todd Barry, worked with Arge a bunch. So I wasn't like brand spanking new, but I wasn't old. You know, I was still an opener, but I would say I was the probably the best opener in San, San Francisco at the time. Like I had like a tight five minutes. I had that uh, joke about surfing, which was got on there and Joe Rogan. Uh, oh, what is it? Was it uh, um, Paps Blue Ribbon? I had a Paps Blue Ribbon joke. What, <laughs> what, what contest did Paps uh, win? Uh, what contest did Paps win the Blue Ribbon in? How can I get drunk for $3.50 contest? Or which beer will make me uh, defecate like a diseased dog in Tijuana contest? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's when Pass Blue Ribbon was kind of blowing up in the early hipster scene. And I remember kids started drinking it again. So I just started, I was a little bit older. So I was like, you know, that was like the super cheap beer. You know, that was like Milwaukee's best level beer back in the day. But then it kind of had this resurgence. So I wrote that joke. And then the surfing joke was uh, surfing's a dangerous sport. It's the only sport that involves a shark. An animal might come out and eat you during the game. No other sport has that. That's a different, I won't do the whole bit, but I had like, you know, a good five minutes and that's what you needed on that show. And I was disappointed. So, so in, in the audition was, was it, I think they were saying it was like two minutes, like in the first round. Yeah. I think it was like two or three minutes and I was perfect for that from all those. I don't know. It was like all the best timing in the world. Like a lot of older comics would wig out even me at now. Like, I don't know if I could deal with it. But at the time, uh, I could do two to three minutes and I can make it pop. You know, I knew because I was opening and that's what you had to do with opening. You just needed two or three jokes and you just kind of leaned on those jokes. And that's what I did. I had two or three good jokes that I just leaned in on and I could make a room pop. I had a bunch of other material, but mainstream like, you know, I had a good like three or four really good jokes that were TV ready. And it was just like the perfect timing of it. And it was just a weird, surreal thing that I, I went to the, 
the theater and uh, I took I remember taking the bus there. I remember there being a line around the block. I remember wearing like this members only like jacket that I had that, you know, I was wearing kind of like thrift. thrift, I was thrift store hip, you know, and I remember not caring. Like, I remember I think that's why I always do the best when, when you not care. Yeah, I think that's why I got it. Because, you know, if anybody tells you about me being on a reality show, it's like I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of a, you know, a snobby hipster in a lot of ways. Like, you know, I barely, you know, I watch TV, but don't watch, watch TV. But, you know, I listen to Fugazi and Minor Thread and, you know, I like obscure hip hop. But uh, so it was uh, it was just like this perfect clip in time. That yeah, I showed up. I even smoked a bowl. I remember I had some weed. I smoked a bowl in line on my set, and I just, I really, and I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. You know, I was in my later twenties, so I just had this like swagger to it, which I think you know works with those competitions. And uh, and I just, I just did it, and they picked me. And then in the like when you're watching like season one or the first episode, they just like tons of cutaways to the two judges kind of rolling their eyes and commenting. Was that do you think that was played for the cameras? Oh, yeah. A lot of stuff was played for the cameras. Ross, Ross and Mark. Yeah, those guys are awesome. But yeah, yeah. A lot of stuff is played for the cameras. They want to get all the the weirdos and all that. You know, they like cutting in a lot of bad comedy. And then they like they did like people with good jokes too. So, I mean, as played out as that show went on like 16 seasons, I can't tell you how surreal it was to do the very first season because nobody really knew about it. And even I got even hate from some like road comics from doing it. What, like, what is this guy getting Not me? Or you sold out by doing it? Or Yeah, what, yeah what it was kind of you sold out. Like, uh, I, I mean, I don't mean to call him out. There's a lot of stuff I could say on this podcast, but I remember yeah. after I got on the show, and the show was big, like I'm saying, like, I think it was like the show that kicked off the, you know, the comedy boom of the 2000s because it was just like it wasn't ever on prime time. People had forgotten about stand-up except for, like, you know, Chris Rock or a couple other key specials. But besides that, it was like this obscure like jazz scene on the side. And this was like a very mainstream NBC summer series. And the weird thing is it also was so big that they played it on Comedy Central at the same time. They would first play it on NBC. I've never heard of that deal before again. Yeah, yeah, that's that's working some deal. Yeah, that was some work. And it was kind of it was before my space. Even it was before. I mean, my my 2003 summer was like kind of like old Hollywood, old, you know, uh, television kind of kicking the door. It felt like I just was wandering around a, a dark room and I just kicked open this door and this, you know, thing opened up. And all of a sudden I'm on television. I'm getting like the best agents and managers calling me up and. You know, it was it was uh, so much fun to go through as cheesy as the show was. And it came with some baggage. It was awesome. Yeah, I would say, yeah, Jimmy Dore, this comic, uh, saw me at the improv right after I did. it. went down to L.A. and I signed with Barry Katz, uh, who was my manager for a short period of time. So was that was that part of it? So he's a manager. Then he would also sign all the acts kind of thing. Nothing wrong with that. But it sort of makes sense. But uh, that's no, but I was a free agent at the time, and Jay Moore took a liking to me, and Jay Moore took me out on the road. I had a big falling out with him. I uh, accused him of stealing my jokes. Um, oh my god! And there's this thing I don't know if you know Rick Shapiro, <laughs> a New York legendary New York comic. But uh, yeah, he got that's his- the thing where it's on YouTube where. He took Rick Shapiro's bit, and I think he did it on SNL or something. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's like, you know, Jay, Jay opened a lot of doors for me. and uh, Or as they say, uh, he's got a good ear for comedy. Got a good ear for comedy. <laughs> uh, I don't want to trash anybody. I'm kind yeah, of, no, I'm no, no, no. but yeah. at the same time, you know, it's kind of old, you know, road, you know, East Coast style, like, uh, fuck you. I'll just, you know, grab a couple of your tags or whatever, but that happens, you know, and I, I'm not going to say anything, but, uh, but at the same time, yeah, I had kind of had a falling out with them after that, 
But during the time, they did open a lot of doors. And yeah, Barry Katz signed me. I got a couple big television things. And I learned the road from Jay, Burt Kreischer. It was me and Burt Kreischer opening up for Jay after that. But the television, the show, Ralphie May was on my season. Uh, Rich Voss was on my season. Corey Kahaney, Dave Mordahl. These are, uh, and then Dat Fan, which became one of the biggest names in people hating comedy was the winner that season. yeah yeah so uh, i mean just to back up a bit did you just have to do the one audition and then you were in the house or no. did you have to do a couple other preliminary things so my next one is they said you can go they were like rob and that's when they started flying me down to la so i i the first one you do for free but then they were like hey rob we want to bring you to the next one which is the semifinals and so I was like, okay, let's see how this goes. And that was in LA at the Laugh Factory. And that was the first time I met Ralphie May. But I had worked with Sean Rouse. I was friends with this comedian that passed away, this really dark, funny, hilarious comedian. Um, but he was from Texas and Ralphie was from Texas. And I grew up a lot in the South. Like, a lot of my relatives were the size of Ralphie. Like. I didn't trip on Ralphie. Like Ralphie and I clicked. Ralphie had been doing comedy like 10 years and he was just like crushing. He was just this, you know, over the top personality. But I remember meeting him, but I, we did the Laugh Factory. Kevin Shea and me, we went down to LA. They put me up, um, actually went out to dinner with Sean Rouse that night. And then we went and did the Laugh Factory. And this, the judges, and I can't find this episode. I don't know. For some reason, the universe won't let me clip this out. But it was Jay Moore. It was, uh, no, it was uh, Joe Rogan, uh, Buddy Hackett, and Monique were the three judges. Oh, wow. I think Buddy Hackett's last TV appearance was believe, on Last uh, Comic Standing. Yes. And he gave me, he loved, and I did that surfing joke, and it was at the Laugh Factory. And at the time... Uh, San Francisco comics were better than LA comics was the weird thing. Like when I went down there, it, I, I think there's a reason by that. It's I, I'll, I'll attest that San Francisco audiences are some of the worst. Yeah. <laughs> they'll, they'll hiss at you and they'll, they'll be just arms folded. And it's known that way for music as well. Like for bands, they'll just be arm folded. I could do better than you sort of attitude. And it, yeah, it's a little prudish. <laughs> but little it makes snobby. the comics good. It makes so you good. It yeah. makes you not be a hack. Yeah, was exactly. Especially not... back then. I think now with the internet, things have changed and, you know, you can get numbers going super hack. But in San Francisco, if you kind of sounded like some weird road comic or something they heard before, it was like, next, whatever, dude. Yeah, there were two camps in San Francisco. Like, we did, like, the hacky comics that would destroy the rooms. Yeah, but we'd be like, ah. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, it was good. But for it made you it made you a good comic though. It made me a good comic because I, you know, I definitely I would definitely probably lean into the hack style. You know, I kind of have a jock older brother. Like I could definitely do kind of frat boy material. But coming up in San Francisco, kind of in hanging out with you and Arge and Spiegelman and W. Kamau Bell, like I can't say how much I love those times. When I look back on my life, like being shaped in the beginning kind of like you could you could you can put the bar up a little bit you don't have to go all the way up but you you just had to be a, just a little bit more clever than your average bear uh on each joke it was kind of the game back then it's not yeah i mean again there's also an attitude of gotta play to the back of the room a lot i know <laughs> which know, isn't the best isn't yeah. the best attitude to have, but there was this like, okay, no, I want to make the comics laugh first. When years later you realize, well, it is kind of about the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But in the <laughs> don't, beginning, don't, you don't, leave, be cool. don't leave them out of the equation. Yeah, you got to do a little bit of everything at the yeah. end of the day and find <laughs> yourself in the middle. That's what I've always said is like, whether it's spirituality or any, politics, I try to get right into the middle, you know, especially with coffee. I like a medium roast. I don't like a dark roast. I don't like a light roast. I like it right in the middle. Yeah. Excuse me. 
so you had to go through a couple auditions in in uh, L.A. and L.A. Then... That was fascinating. Yeah, I went yeah. up. Joe Rogan loved my surfing joke. He said, "I wish I would have thought of that joke." And that was on YouTube for a while, but NBC took it down. And I have all my episodes, but I don't. For some reason, the universe won't let me have that clip. Yeah. So he gave me a big boost, as well as Buddy Hackett, which. You know, I remember watching Buddy Hackett's first uh, HBO special, like really young, because they would show it during the daytime and it was on HBO. And I, I remember I thought he was funny. And I loved the Robin Williams early HBO specials. I watched that with my dad. Like, I remember doing that. Uh, that very first one's at the Great American Music Hall, actually. And I got to play the Great American Music Hall after Last Comic Yeah, Show. actually, yeah. I saw you at the Great American Music Hall right after Last Comic Standing. I yeah. was in the audience. Thanks for coming, Harmon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was hot. I mean, again, we all loved it when you were on the show because it was like, all right, you know, our homeboy is, is representing. So but yeah, know, and I was only happy. like three years in. Yeah, I didn't and 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 that's what was weird in the little bit of a weird bitter taste was like the later years, like the clubs got behind the show and these guys would do the show and then do the funny bone circuit and the improv circuit. You know, Amy Schumer came out of that show. Uh, there, you know, there's a lot. John Heffron. You know, there was all these like mm -hmm. hardcore road comics. Yeah. But at the time, uh, when I did it, it was so new. Like the managers and the club owners weren't real. They didn't know what to do with it. And so I booked with I booked that gig through like a jam band booker. You know, that was a friend of a friend that used to book bands. Um, he's actually the, the like the president of another planet now and does like a lot of those uh, everything that's not clear channel. He's a, he's got his hand in, but he booked me on that. He booked me for Richard Lewis. I opened for Richard Lewis at the Great American Music. Oh, wow. Legend. Yeah, that was legendary like a year before. And then I had a relationship for opening um, for one of his first like producing comedy shows. And then he booked me right after Last Comic Standing. And at that time. You know, the TV reality fame is weird because it comes very fast and goes really, you know, it's just like this bolt of lightning. And at the time, yeah, I, so I used that bolt that one of the things I got out of it was, um, yeah, I got to, I sold out the Great American Music Hall. I put on W. Kamau Bell, John Hugasian, and myself, and we did that gig. And uh, I remember I stayed at the Phoenix Hotel next Oh, door. yeah, that's a cool hotel. That's where Nirvana it was like the rock and roll hotel. Yeah, that was like the all the bands rock. that play the Warfield play uh, stay there. Yeah, so <laughs> I made sure that was a part of my gig. I was like, I want a room at the Phoenix, and I want, I want, and not much money, and I want to do the show, and that's one show. And then when they they put you in the house, uh, dude, what was like? How long were you in the house for? Like, uh, but like then how we long had to go to Vegas. Again? Yeah, I so I had. Ah. I won in uh, I won the semifinals in, not one, but I got selected. They took the, like the top five from the West Coast and then the top five from the East Coast. And then we did Vegas. And then I did it. I, I, I just ha kept on having hot sets and I was mixing some of the old material and the new material. But the Internet wasn't around and they didn't care. They just wanted to see you kill. But I remember the judge was John Witherspoon. I do have this clip up on Instagram is that that made me that tripped me out. Like I had a great, I had a one liner and I, I made John Witherspoon laugh and he was the judge. And I was like, Oh my God, this is fucking surreal. And then they picked me to live in the house and people were like praying to God and crying. And again, Wait, who, wait, who people in the house were praying to God and crying. No, God, they wanted to be in the house. Like, oh, right, and, right. And was didn't it? get in the house. He was so mad. He didn't get in the oh, house. Ants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The one named uh, comic yeah. that's been I, you know, had no. that shady past as well. What was, oh, he had a shady past? No, he didn't have that. But I remember Rogan like uh, said he was stealing material or something. Oh, oh okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was, he was just doing a lot of road material and, uh, so there was all these like, you know, all, all these little cross firing things, but I wasn't really in tune with it. And I was just kind of this loosey goosey kind of, uh, you know, kind of a early hipster stoner comic that I, I didn't have. I just kept on riding the wave. And then I won in Vegas and then it really came to life. Like, dude, you, you got to sign these contracts with NBC. You're moving into a mansion in the Hollywood Hills. 
It was in the Hollywood Hills. It was like a multi-million. They rented it, but yeah. they, it was like multi-million. It was stacked with you know full camera crews. Uh, you had uh, wire on you, the whole thing. And my roommate was that fan. I lived. I, yeah, he was, he became the uh, sort of the villain of uh, the season villain. one. <laughs> the villain of season one. And uh, he it went, was, so why? I mean, again, if people haven't seen it, why was he the villain? Considered yeah. the villain. I have friends from Virginia that don't have any like uh, clout in the comedy world and they didn't mind him. But comedians really was like he was doing like, I guess, you know, you know, comedians are just snobby. And I guess they just thought his material was very, you know, hacky and very stereo old stereotypes and, you know, hamming it up. But that stuff works for the big audiences. And so he was just killing with this stuff. Um, and he'd been around like a good 10 years. Like he understood a little bit more of the Hollywood game. And like, he really wanted to, he researched the show and I was just, I'm just hanging out. Like Ralph Ray and I were smoking pot in the bathroom while being filmed on prime TV. <laughs> you know, it was, it, it was a cool house. They had, you know, we had a, there was like, it was like the whole dream house. Like it was, you had a pool table. There was a pool and looked over to the hall. It was a beautiful, if you ever get a chance to go up to the Hollywood Hills, you start to see how these dudes are living. Like you look over LA, like we're looking over LA. There's nobody around us. There's a pool. It looks like there was porn shot in the eighties there. It was like very, uh, it was just, it was so trippy. And then I remember just watching it cause I taped it and then it was came out that summer. So it was all like taped it they sat on it maybe like a month and a half. And then all of a sudden it was like commercial on every commercial, like after entertainment tonight, like before really YouTube and all this stuff, like it was just a really big mainstream show. Yeah. 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 So you're in the house. Um, so, but how long were you in that house for? Like how long did you live? And it was a, a panopticon syndrome where you always knew you're being filmed. Yeah. And it yeah, you would get a lit. It was yeah, it was always being filmed. Like I said, I was in a bunk bed. Like they had like a bunk. Like a, like every moment was filmed. Yeah, and I didn't know like Ralphie and Dave Mordell and Rich Voss. They'd all been doing stand up for a good ten years, and they were all like kind of hardcore road comics. So they all knew each other and knew kind of like how to play it and what how they were gonna sell on the road and all this stuff. And I was just like, you know, I was hanging out with you. Just and let it happen. I was just letting it all happen. <laughs> and uh, so I was I was kicked out of the house. In my episode, it was me and Ralphie May. And I was like, I made it that far with such let like so beginnings of comedy that I was like, I could have challenged like a, a worse comedian, but I went for the best. I was like, so I guess you had to do this thing like you get picked to go do a Kumite. Like they thought it was like eight mile. It was two comics against each other in a studio. Uh, like, like a comedy roast battle type thing. Yeah. Total roast battle. But you just did like seven minutes, the other dude, seven minutes. And then the crowd voted for it. So uh, yeah. So I went up against Ralphie, but I made it to like the third main episode. So that was the big deal is like, I made it. In the very beginning on the first episode, I made it again on the second episode. I made it again on the third episode. Then I'm in the house and I made it past the first week and then the second week. And I have to say, like, it was the one season, like, it was still naive. Like, people really liked the season because it wasn't, it wasn't found out yet. There was still kind of this, like, kind of wholesomeness to it and goofiness to it. It actually, that season, it did get Emmy nominated. And uh, Barry Katz still says Emmy nominated. And the only reason he was Emmy nominated was that first season of Last Comic Standing. The other in in the ratings, I, when it went on air, the ratings were like through the roof. Like I only got paid like fifteen hundred dollars an episode. And after, you know, after managers and taxes, you know, that comes out to whatever. But I thought it was living large yeah. at the time. And uh but the ratings was like getting bigger ratings than friends because it was during that like explosion of reality television just happening that, that like, you know, yeah. getting these huge uh, American got talent type numbers, you know? And were there, was it kind of like, uh, you know, like the Osbournes, like 
they would manipulate things in the house for the cameras. Yeah. Like there was this some a clip I was watching today where there's a rat in the house. Yeah. Was that totally? There was a rat in the house, but they had to come up with something because so they put I the rat. They, I, they put the rat in the Hollywood mansion. Yeah, they wanted us to rip on each other and yeah. fight in the house. And you know me, I'm I'm very much an introvert at the end of the day. And so I wasn't ham boning it at all. And that was bumming people out. I think the higher ups, like I remember like the top guy from NBC was like hanging around one day. Somebody came up to me. It was like, Rob, you, you got to start engaging with people. You know, you're just, and I would end up smoking pot with Ralphie and just sitting by the pool. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm going to kick back. I'm going to kick back. I'm gonna and be I, large. I didn't really respect. I don't want to, I don't want to get in fights. This is, awesome. I don't want to get in fights. I don't, I, and you know, I didn't want to be that jackass on TV. I just kind of played it nice guy, which is kind of my, not nice guy, but you know, I wasn't up for the drama. And maybe that played against me, maybe not, because, uh, you know, I, I was top 10, but I wasn't like top three or four when the, it seemed like everybody that went top three or four started selling more tickets on the road. Like I got enough to like start getting uh, opportunities and management and getting on television and, you know, working with Jay Moore, working with uh, I actually I, after I left Jay Moore, I got to parlay into. Uh, our good friend Jeff Wills hooked me up with um, opening for Mitch Hedberg's first theater tour. So it was Al Madrigal and Mike Birbiglia and, and I splitting dates opening for Hedberg. Oh, wow. The there you tour. go. So, yeah, this, so as much as, uh, you know, I can look back and like, oh, man, they did this. At the same time, it was amazing and cool and just a super surreal thing to live through. Because I had friends from college and high school and it was before the internet, so my e I would wake up and this thing would get huge ratings, and my and my 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 Yahoo mail would be filled, filled with like fan mail and all this shit. It was crazy. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. Was everyone kind of playing it for the cameras in the house like 24-7? Or was there real moments or you know, you always see like conflict? I think one woman was crying. Are those Real yeah, moments, were, you know, comics. There was drama. There was a lot of like drama. Yeah, there was Sean Kent who had cancer and he was playing that up. And then Rich Voss was calling him out on it. So there was a big fight with those guys going on. And then Ralphie was fighting, got in the middle of it. Ralphie loved it. You know, he was built for that show. So he was yeah. any fight, anytime the camera could get on, he knew. I didn't know to play into it you know i was just trying to play it cool and safe and get a tv credit and get out which is what i did <laughs> get back on the road and back to the I, clubs well and get out of the san francisco scene like it yeah. did it there is like that local scene is so fun and cool and you know you're, you're to, okay to a point to a point but there is like you know as as much as i want to be this artist uh comedian you know just look at my joke you gotta you gotta get up and out and that show got me up and out and i moved to la after that uh hung out there a couple years and then moved to here in new york in 2005 so yeah again that fan won the season he won the season yeah he won the season uh everybody was mad he beat ralphie may everybody was flipping out but it's a, it's a contest yeah it was a contest and it was and a, he gamified it and again, it's about gamifying the contest. And he had I, charts and things and yeah, everything meticulously plotted out, which is, you and know, it, that's pretty brilliant on that level because it's gamification and he totally gamified it. Yeah, the word was he put in like ads on Vietnamese newspapers to vote for him and all this oh, stuff. Oh, wow. Like, yeah. Really? But, yeah. <laughs> he was in it to win oh, so, it. So the, the voting was done by the viewers? Yeah, the final episodes, like ah. at the top 10, I think it, when they had to vote whether Ralph, like, you call it home, you decide. You know, it was that thing. And then they brought me back for season three. That was the weird thing. Like, oh, really? What, what capacity was I that? Kinda, I didn't know about that. It was season one against season two. So the next ah. they did it was Gary Goleman, 
broke out pretty big on that season. It was like Todd Glass. It seemed like everybody that was the old guard found out how big the ratings were, and then everybody wanted that show. Every because it was just a way to get on primetime TV and do stand up. There's still not many avenues besides America Got Talent now to have that type of exposure. So everybody, every the next year, all the agents, everybody was like, yeah, to be on that show. And then that season did really well. So then, then that was the cool thing about being on my season that I was the top 10 on the, ver like when you brought up that show, you had to bring up my name. Like it was just for one year, but it was a huge show. But I was on radio. I was, on, I was doing local radio, local TV interviews, getting tours set up. And um, so it was just a lot of juice and heat that I wasn't ready for. And but every year there was a season, it would die down because there was a new crop of whoever's. And that's how yeah. reality TV works anyway. But there was a sweet moment there. Just being the first person to ride that wave, you know, was just like, whoa, you know. Yeah. What, what, what was the grand prize? I, it was a special on Comedy Central. And then I think it was like 20 grand. So dad fan had a Comedy Central special. Yeah, it was, he got a half hour. It was when they were doing the half hour. Oh, right. Okay, gotcha. So he got a, it, it, but he got a half hour at Comedy Central. And then the other years, I think there was a connection to the Tonight Show. And I was asked to audition for the Tonight Show. And I didn't take the opportunity to push my tape for hard. You know, I, it was such a mainstream success. And I came from, kind of like, you know, I kind of wanted to be, you know, minor threat Fugazi. I kind of wanted, yeah. I wanted to be Arge. I wanted to be Mitch, uh, Arch Barker, Mitch Hedberg, you know, these respected road comics that also had kind of an alt edge to them that I thought was cool at the time. Now alternative comedy has gone a different way, but now back then it was just, it really was like a different Nirvana, you know, Pearl Jam type of scenario like it kind of just like blossomed out of all this whack shit that was going on and i wanted to be a part of that so it was kind of a weird thing for me it was like so mainstream like i got a lot of blessings out of it but also it kind of put me into a world that i didn't fit into perfectly and that would be a reality star like i you know me i'm you know i'm very private on you know off stage i'm not doing it for chicks and drugs well i'm doing it for coffee and weed and laughs and you know there i really did have a calling to do i don't know i've whenever i meditated or when i ever was in that sales job i remember who i was there was a part of me that was like you got there's something in me that i gotta do and i did it and then i remember i was so happy that i did do it because if i didn't take that step and i saw that show it would have bummed me out that i didn't go for it does that make sense yeah, totally, man. Totally. <laughs> and uh, when, like a couple last questions here. What do you think uh, Last Comic Standing's place is in comedy history? I, you know, I think it's a big part of the comedy boom of the 2000s. Like I really, that summer, I mean, I don't think it's on the same parallel, but that summer, the two hottest stand-up shows was Chappelle's show. Chappelle's show came out that summer too. And I remember watching the first Chappelle's show with Dan Crawford and Al Madrigal dying, laughing like holy, like we all knew about Chappelle from the punchline. And, you know, I would watch him from the back wings, you know, when I was an early yeah. guy. Doing four hour sets. Doing, I re <laughs> but I kind of remember before the four hour sets where he was just doing like one hour. Like he was just like, <laughs> it was like kind of the super skinny, like just hit. Yeah. No. And he's still, you know, I still give him major props, but now it's like bigger than Guns N' Roses. You know, it's just like a mega Metallica type band. I yeah. remember him when he was like, you know, Pixies, you know, to put it in, in music level. But yeah, it, I guess it, I think it was, it really kicked off the stand-up comedy boom of the 2000s and it made America the show wasn't perfect and kind of cheesy and comedy competitions are kind of evil at the end of the day but it did just expose America to stand-up comedy again like I, re I really think it really mainstreamed and you know so many people came out of it Theo Vaughn got you know out of that Amy Schumer came out of that. Like these guys wouldn't have gotten mainstream credits without, or even looked at 
you know, stand-up's just so hard. It was a good, you know, it's just a good first credit or your last credit. Yeah, and again, it was open to anyone, really, because there's lines around the block, so anyone could pop in, and they and that's what I did. did. <laughs> I was I was I was literally, but I was the only walk on. Everybody that was top ten my year, and I think after that, there's not. Everybody had reps, and I literally was like a dude from the brainwash that smoked a bowl and stand on stand it in a line, and I didn't see it come. I would just say in life. Like if you have intuition, just use that intuition, especially with all this technology. Like, as you know, as we've lived, like shit just happens. Like you don't know what's going to happen, but if you just keep on going, I remember like, yeah, I was like on my last dollar. I didn't know what was going to be next for me. And then this door opened and it was, it, it was really cool. Yeah. And, and, and lastly, what is your one favorite memory of the whole experience i guess yeah i guess like like winning those first few shows and getting that momentum and getting into the house and then finishing at the house and the crew was really cool to me i met like there was all these producers that that i got along with uh and they were like not from reality like some of them were from the daily show and I just respected him. And uh, yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, making John Witherspoon laugh tripped me out. Like being up there, making Joe Rogan laugh and Buddy Hackett laugh. Like that was so far from my dreams. And to see that kind of happen on live TV in front of me. Yeah, I remember moving to L.A. and just watching it on my TV that I didn't have cable yet. Like I just had this like TV and I was just like. Dun, 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 dun. And it was NBC, son. and then it was me, and they're showing commercials with me, and I'm like, holy fuck, man, this is, you know, this isn't the One World Cafe, this isn't the coffee <laughs> shop, this is NBC television, and I just, and Barry Katz had signed me, he put me, he helped me get an apartment, so those guys were very good to me, uh, the show was good to me, you know, it was a great experience. Very cool, and where can people find you? robcantrell.com and then my podcast the cannabis coffee hour check that out uh i drink coffee i smoke cannabis i'm here in new york and brooklyn um yeah my dates are up on my website robcantrell.com i don't mess with twitter I, I only rock an ig which is instagram and my instagram is rob 88 cantrell i got clips up there check them out all right rob Thanks so much, man. It was, that was fun to catch up. It is fun to hear the uh, San Francisco stories. <laughs> yeah, man. Thanks for putting it down, man. I do think uh, your podcast, Comedy History 101, and it is a part of comedy. So it's cool that 20 years later that it's getting documented. So thank you, Harmon. Okay, there you have it. That's our episode on the history of Last Comic Standing. We wrapped it up with a nice bow and we put a fork on it and it's done. So once again, take some time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101 on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me at Harmon Leon. Until next time, bye-bye. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. I'm trying to use the phone. Comedy History 101.